Okay, Galatians tonight. Galatians, mixing it up a little bit. Better call Paul, part 15, Galatians chapter 1 to start with. General subject, contradictory gospels. How do we sort it out? All right, let's take a couple moments of silent prayer. Didn't expect to see this many people. and Usually most of you are out in your winter solstice celebrations. So, all right, let's pray. Father, what a privilege it is to gather tonight. We still have a relatively free country in which we live, but even more so, we have the liberty that was purchased for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. May this message that we receive tonight enable us to continue to stand firm and stand fast in that liberty. And so not to be entangled again with any yoke of slavery. We thank you for the opportunity of gazing into the fulfilled Torah of freedom, which is the New Testament. And to be transformed to another degree of glory by what we receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Are we good? Galatians chapter 1. Now, Galatians was written, obviously, after the Antioch incident, the clash or the collision. You might call it a brotherly collision between Paul and Peter. A famous confrontation in which Peter had receded from table fellowship with the Gentile churches in Antioch, the Gentiles there, and under pressure from the Jerusalem VIPs, backed off, and he also caused Paul's own partner, Barnabas, to participate in that hypocrisy. So Paul stood up and laid out Peter. That's We're going to look a little bit toward the aftermath, the slight aftermath of that collision. It happens in Galatians 2 11 to 14. So if Paul is recounting it, then it already happened. And Paul also recounted two visits to Jerusalem. And so they already happened. One, three years or so, or really two. They used to round off when they said three, they meant two point X. And so two in some amount of months after his call from the Lord at the outskirts of Damascus, he visited Jerusalem And then 13.x, 13 years and a few months later, visited a second time. Both of those visits were completed by the time he wrote Galatians. So we get a pretty good idea that in the date of when Paul wrote Galatians. The incident and a collision occurred in 49 or early 50 A.D., or we'll call it CE, common era. Paul speaks of it in Galatians 2, 11 to 14. And also we're going to look at, we're going to look at this today, 2, 15 and 16, because it's revelatory about some things about faith. Paul's first and his second, again, trip to Jerusalem had occurred. That's 34 
plus two point something plus 13 point something. So in mid 50 CE, the common era, or what we call AD, Paul returned to the Aegean through Antioch to Galatia. He wrote Galatians in the fall winter of 51 and maybe even early 52 before he wrote Romans. And by then, this cluster of house churches had already deserted the gospel that they heard in Paul's missionary journey a year or so before that. They'd already quickly turned away from him, Paul said, who called them by the grace of Christ to a heterodox or heretical gospel. So let's take up right there, Galatians chapter 1, from Paul, and notice how he starts right off, an apostle not from men, not by a committee of men. Now, men who are ordained under certain organizations are not finally and ultimately loyal to those who ordained them, but to the Lord who called them. The call of God upon a man of God precedes any other calls or ordainings by man. And Paul especially makes this clear from Paul, an apostle, not from men. And that in the plural means not from a committee of men as if because it was rumored that Paul did receive his apostleship only from men nor through any human agency at all, he says, or a man, which we would say in our language, nor through any human agency at all, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who resurrected him from the dead. Both in Galatians and in Romans, Paul begins his opening salvo with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we'll maybe look at that on Christmas Day, we are meeting on Christmas Day. Between Christmas and Easter, that's the two headaches of the pastor, at least this pastor. And then he says, and, this is a co-authored letter, from all the brothers who are with me, to the house churches in Galatia, that's in the Roman province of Phrygia at the time, or modern Turkey today, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord, Jesus the Messiah. And I want to focus on this verse. Who gave himself for our sins in order to rescue us from this present evil age. According to the will of God, even our Father, to whom belongs the glory for the ages of the ages. The Latin is... I always used to wonder about this when I said this in the Latin mass as an altar boy, secula seculorum, which is the age of the ages. Amen. Now, I know it was on my mind. It's a little distracting. I I was asked to give a report on my mom since we prayed for her, since you prayed for her Sunday morning. And she did. She had a dramatic improvement right up, probably right while you were praying. I heard right after church, and and she is home now. So I appreciate you praying. And I know there are many other prayer requests that we're praying for. Pam and I are praying at at home a lot. And we get the requests by phone, and we're praying for a lot of those. We're expecting the same 
faithfulness of God in answering your petitions for your prayers also. That's what I was thinking of. So now at the end of this year, I, I dubbed this year for Ted Alestai Church going beyond, the year of going beyond. And this next year is going to also be one of those, but we'll think of a different name for it. But the it's interesting that the last book I will recommend to you, and I have mentioned this a couple of times, but I've been really engaging in the themes of this book. And I, I recommend it to people that might not want to work their way through the terrific maze of Douglas Campbell's book, which is called The Deliverance of God, an Apocalyptic Reading of Justification in Paul, which I consider to be the breakthrough book of the 21st century for us, uh, for the church. And I believe what's in it is going to be the mainstay belief of the church by maybe 75 years from now, if the Lord doesn't come and transform everything first. But so you make a decision. Do you pioneer something, an insight that you know probably a lot of people are going to resist or do you wait? It's going to happen anyway sometime down the road. And we were talking about this this past week. I think if you see it, you got to say it and bear the consequences, whatever they are. There's a lot of people today who are not in the arena like some of us are. My doctrine is developed in a furnace. My doctrine is developed as a pastor who's concerned for a flock. And so the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ wasn't just a theological doctrine, but a concern for the flock and a concern that you would be experiencing the assurance that belongs to people. In fact, faith in all of Paul's epistles never and this is arguable, but we'll iron it out. We got a lot of time to spend in Paul. Arguably, faith is never even hinted at as being the condition that is met on the part of mankind in order to appropriate salvation. It is rather assurance. And I kind of woke up thinking about this the other day in Hebrews 11.1. 1. The only time the Bible ever exposes that word faith to a definition it says faith is the assurance of things hoped for now that's the subjective meaning of hypostasis there hypostasis generally means substance but in the context of hebrews 11 you have people called presbyters or the elders of previous dispensations acting or previous ages let's call it it's a better way to call it they acted on faith and never do any of these testimonies say that they acquired or appropriated salvation through faith. Now, if Abel gained an approval for his sacrifice, Noah being moved by things to come, it's also faith is a conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is almost always that. It's a matter of assurance, not appropriation. And that's because the gospel involves a unilateral contract, not a bilateral, or a unilateral covenant, rather, not a bilateral contract. And I was going to say, the last book I'm recommending this year is a book I've already recommended. It's called Beyond, of all things. And it's called Beyond the Old and New Perspectives. 
And it is edited by Chris Tilling, who in his own right is a phenomenal Christologist. He has a book called The Divine Christology of Paul. And that's something that's sort of the converse of the discovery I made about the Israel of God in several years ago, which really set us on a path that we have been on since then. And it has resulted in the present thing, the present realization, the present insights. Now, the best thing I've read in it so far is the first article in that. And that's a book you can pick and choose the articles. You don't have to go through the hard stuff. There's some really good brief articles that help you to understand. In fact, this understands in one paragraph the entirety of Campbell's book. And in other words, it summarizes it best I've ever seen. It's by Alan J. Torrance, T-O-R-R-A-N-C-E. And he writes about Campbell's book, The Deliverance of God, an apocalyptic reading of justification in Paul. He says this, quote, what is presented here is nothing less than what Campbell describes as a divine rescue mission that liberates and reconstitutes a confused humanity, which is otherwise dysfunctional ethically, epistemically, that means in terms of knowing and knowledge, spiritually and theologically, by giving it to participate in Christo, in Christ, and thereby in an all-embracing, all-transforming communion with God, a communion that requires to be conceived in irreducibly Trinitarian terms with an essentially Christological and pneumatological grammar. Now, that's a mouthful, but maybe we can iron out that quote sometime. But let's take that idea of the divine rescue mission. And that's exactly what the first divine mission of Jesus Christ, the first divine mission is. It's a divine rescue mission. And so is the second divine mission, that of the Holy Spirit. This divine rescue mission is manifested in stark contradiction to a foreign gospel, which Paul exposes the features of in Romans and in Galatians. I wanted to bring you to Galatians tonight just to show you. I'm calling this series Better Call Paul, which means I'm not going to be restricted to Romans, although we're going to be spending a lot of time in Romans, Lord willing, if I have breath in me still and if the crick doesn't rise. The forensic and the mystical. There are two discourses. One is forensic. One is mystical. Now, mystical, I don't mean in the sense of mysticism, but mystical in the sense of the gospel being a mystery, the unveiling of a secret. And what you should know now, and again, I'm being pastoral in this because my intention is for you to have eschatological insurance, assurance. I want you to have assurance of things hoped for that make that confident assurance for you because that's what's really transformative of your life and of my life from the very innermost mainspring of our being, that hope, that expectation. That's what faith is. It's a gift from God. It's giftedness. It's assurance. Its essence is confident assurance of things hoped for. 
as Hebrews 11.1 1 says, it's also the conviction of unseen things. I don't see a risen, ascended, enthroned Savior. But I have the conviction that he's at the right hand of God. And so I do see with the eyes of my heart. And that says everything to me. Stop being concerned only with the things of this earth, Paul says, but rather be thinking of the above things where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. His incarnation, his life lived, his death, his crucifixion, his sufferings and passion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his enthronement are all part of one saving event. In fact, it could be said that Jesus Christ, since his incarnation, his entire life was a vicarious response to God for us. It was for us. He was acting as us. A response to God the Father. That the gospel of Paul, like the book of Revelation, is apocalyptic. By that we don't mean it's an expression of disaster, end time disaster. Apocalyptic doesn't mean that at all. The meaning I'm after is that apocalypse, an apocalypse means that Jesus Christ reveals God as God. He is God revealing God. He died for our sins. He didn't die to save us from God. The Old Testament God as Marcion, the first real, he was the first real heretic that made a big deal out of that and distinguished God of the Old Testament as a wrathful, angry God from the compassionate, sweet Lord Jesus Christ as if they're two gods, when in fact Jesus Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so there is no distinction in that sense. Although there is a distinction of persons, there is not a distinction of essence and primary attribute, which is love. Now there are a lot of people that aren't in the arena, and they get on their little internets and they throw stones over into the arena from outside the arena and I don't think it's even you have to even engage these people I like and respect people that are in the arena and I can talk with them and I can engage with them and even argue in a, in a loving way with them but the peanut gallery throwing stones into the arena from outside the arena some of these people never have been in the arena then just for your protection, you don't really need to engage them because they're throwing stones from the peanut gallery at best or outside of the arena altogether. And they may claim their credentials. They may recommend their credentials just like the Corinthian super apostles did. But I don't pay much attention, and I don't think you ought to pay much attention. Now, if you want to engage this from your own standpoint, I recommend it. I hope I welcome it. And I love to engage with people that are in the arena. I'm in the arena here. This is a, these doctrines are developed pastorally in the fighting ring. And so just thought I'd throw that out or throw it. Because I'm going to ask these people who really, their main thing that they really want to hold on to as their central Christian tenet is hell for some reason. 
And the reason is they have accepted the forensic discourse of the teacher that Paul is combating and that Peter fell under the sway of for a time. They're accepting that forensic discourse in which God is presented with the essential attribute of justice, that his essential attribute is justice. Whereas the mystery, which is the gospel, the mystical discourse that is contrary to that presents God with his essential attribute of love. A God who is just and right and righteous, but the forefront, the tip of the spear and the essence of his being and act and essence is love. John got the point and he said, God is love. We know that God is just. That's an adjective, but it never says God is justice. We know that God loves. That's a verb, but we know that God is love. The mystical discourse presents God in his essential nature as being love. The forensic one presents God as having justice be the primary attribute. The essential attribute. So if the essential attribute of God is justice, the justice has to be retributive because this guy talks about God's wrath without, and there is the wrath of God toward that which has distorted humanity. It's called sin and sins. And Christ died for our sins. He didn't die to save us from his father. He died to bring us to his father. He died to save his people from their sins, said the angel in Matthew 121 in the birth announcement. You will call his name Yeshua, Yahweh saves, because he will save his people from their sins. And that's where we are here in Galatians 1.4. So the forensic declares that the essential attribute of God is justice. And that's our primary contact with God and that the justice is retributive. It demands violent retribution for sinners. The mystical reveals that the essential attribute of God is love. And it's a love that of course is just and righteous. So please note in Galatians one, four, where it says, who gave himself for our sins in order to rescue us from this present evil age. Please note that this divine rescue mission is not to save or rescue or deliver from hell, but to rescue us from a presently existing situation. To rescue us from a presently existing situation or arrangement, an age. It's namely a situation in which humankind is enslaved to the power of sin. Sin, not as an act, but as a power. And people who are stuck in an Adamic ontology. You two... The group U2 has a song called Stuck in a Moment. And there are a lot of people who have gone to seminaries or they've learned from pastors. And the tragedy is 
that they have made these pastors under whom they have learned a standard of orthodoxy. And they are stuck in a moment. They're stuck in a, in a moment of a theological development. They don't go beyond a theological development of the Reformation or the Reformed era, or some people don't go beyond the theological development of the medieval times. And they don't go into the liberation of the fact that the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are still actively communicating with the church, and that means enlightening the church more and more each generation. So here we don't get stuck in a moment that we can't get out of. Here we keep moving. Here we keep going beyond. The things I'm teaching you now are going to be truths held and cherished and precious if the Lord doesn't come to transform the whole universe first. These are going to be held and cherished by a vast percentage of Christians someday. But I don't want to wait for that. Because the academy and the discoveries of certain people like Campbell and Tilling and others usually takes about 100 to 150 years to translate from that academy to the church. And what I've tried to do is shorten the distance, shorten the gap a little bit and get it to the church now. And you're the church and you're the you happen to be the church over over whom I have oversight, not domineering authority, but. I've had the privilege to teach for 38 years now. So it's a pastoral thing for me. It's not a theological thing. And so instead of engaging the peanut gallery and those men who are never, never have been in the arena, they've avoided the arena. They've gone to education. They got educated in theology, but they've never gotten into the arena. I'm not going to engage them. I have pastoral friends that have been in the arena and none of them have really contacted me personally or face to face to tell me they disagree. Although some of them say they destroy me in a debate. They never, I never hear from them, you know, call me, we'll talk. But then again, I think about it and I said, would I really have time to engage somebody that is like asking a professional boxer if he would fight some guy that's never done a push-up in his life, never been in the arena. And wouldn't want to do that because we have a license to kill. I speak, of course, theologically. I'm speaking, of course, as Paul would talk about devastating someone through an argument. But anyways, I, I just, I don't want to, you see, I'm not, I don't have an ax to grind. I always test myself to make sure I don't, because whenever I get that rising up in me to say, oh yeah, well, what about you? And, and that is Adamic ontology. That's the dragon coming out of the basement. That's something that'll take away your spiritual life. So you got to throw that aside. I put that aside. But on the other hand, I don't want you to get all tripped up over someone who's got a grudge or a gripe or something, an ax to grind, who has never been in the arena. All right. So my question is, if hell is such an eternal and horrible reality, why does Paul never in all his 13 epistles ever mention it once? The fundies would say 
that he is a liberal preacher, that he's, not, he's a phony, he's a fake, because he's the greatest thing we should be rescued from, he doesn't mention it. He came, the divine rescue mission is to rescue us from a present human condition. That's exactly what it says in Galatians 1.4. This present evil age. In other words, if there were a hell, this age is as close as you'll ever get to it. This age is what we need to be rescued from. You don't know. You see, you don't know that until the more you learn of what the gospel is, the more retrospectively you can say what you were saved from. And this age is a really, it is evil. It's poneros. It's harmful. It's infectious. It's pernicious. It's an evil age. And so this rescue mission is not to save a rescue or deliver us from hell, but to rescue us from a presently existing situation or arrangement, namely a situation in which humankind are enslaved to the power of sin and stuck in an Adamic ontology or the flesh. This divine rescue mission is also a deliverance from an evil false gospel, which the church needs to be delivered from desperately now which proclaims and inculcates salvation through the right. In this case, Paul was fighting against the salvation that came through the right of circumcision for males, of course, only, followed by a comprehensive adherence to the Jewish Torah, including the fenced-off table of kosher eating regulations, fencing off the pagans from it, which Peter had caved to, caved to when he abandoned the table where he was eating with pagan participants in Christo, in Christ. And so in Acts 15.1, there were people who advocated circumcision in order to be saved, and then the Torah in order to be saved. Again, please note, the rescue mission is not from an eternity in hell, but from precisely an ongoing situation, a present age, implying that the deliverance is from this present age to the age to come, which we can begin to experience now. Even as John says, these are written that you may believe. And believing, meaning being characterized by faith, you have the life of the coming age. Not eternal life, you'd have that, but you have the life of the coming age. The life of the coming age is that which delivers you from the present evil age. The life of the coming age is a spirit-led existence. It's a spirit-empowered existence. It's Jesus Christ continuing to communicate to his church through the Holy Spirit. So, if hell is a reality, incidentally, once again, the life of the age to come is enjoyed in believing fidelity in our participation in Messiah's faithfulness. God requires our faithfulness, and we will be evaluated on the basis of our faithfulness. But our faithfulness is our participation in in Christo, in Christ. So my question to the hell people that are hell-bent on having hell be the center of their entire theology, basically. If hell is a reality, 
then certainly Paul would have mentioned it right here. Wouldn't he? If God's rescue mission was the forefront of everything, and if hell was the reality, Paul would have had to mention it right here. If he didn't, he's doing everybody a terrible disservice. But Paul never mentions hell in all of his epistles. Nor does he ever mention the necessity of being saved or rescued from having to go there. Now, if Paul is the chief apostle of the church age and he's not behind any of the other apostles, he says in Ephesians, he's less than the least of all saints, but he's the chief. If he's got the Christian truth, that is a continuity of Old Testament truth that has the narrative of Jesus Christ and his saving act, the saving act of God in Christ. And if he's expounding it in all, probably nearly a third of the New Testament, then why doesn't he ever mention an eternity in hell? And he said, instead, he's saying he's rescued us. Jesus Christ died for our sins to rescue us from this present, and that means this presently ongoing arrangement in this world. Paul never mentions hell in any of his epistles. Or the necessity of being saved or rescued from having to go there, ever. Why not? If hell is a central doctrine, as it is to some of these peanut gallery people who throw stones outside from the outside the arena into the gladiator to hit the gladiators one of those stones might hit a gladiator if i keep throwing these stones maybe it'll hit a gladiator over in that arena these preachers who preach that there's no hell well you better include paul in that one because he never talked about it if hell is the real destination of humanity without Christ, you'd think that the chief apostle of Jesus would mention it. Galatians 1.6, Paul says this instead, I'm appalled. Paul is appalled. Amazed here doesn't mean I'm standing in wonder at something that's beautiful. He's saying, the, I'm appalled that you are so quickly turning away from the one who called you by the grace of Christ. That is what we call, the grace of Christ is what we call a metonymy. It's a figure of speech, metonymy, M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y, metonymy. And it means that it's a phrase or a word or a term that implies a whole series of events. It implies an entire narrative. I think it begins with the incarnation, the birth, Christmas, the life lived in the flesh, the suffering, the passion, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement of Yeshua, born as a descendant of David according to the flesh, and therefore the king, the royal Messiah king. And resurrected from the dead by the spirit of sanctification, 
so that the father can demonstrate that he is God himself, the son of God. And it's been debated about who's doing the calling here, Paul or who. No, I think the caller here is God, because whenever we have the word calling officially stated in the in the New Testament, we have God doing the calling as many as he foreknew those he called. Who does the calling? God, God, the father. How does he call? He calls through by the grace of Christ. Again, this is like 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you've heard that quoted on Sunday morning. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, yet he became poor for your sake, that you might be wealthy beyond your wildest imagination, is what it means, through his poverty. His poverty is a metonymy. It's a single term that evokes or brings to the remembrance the whole narrative of the incarnation, the life, and Jesus Christ's life and expression of obedience to the Father was vicarious. He was doing it for us and as us. That's why in Christ all will be made alive. More on this is, is coming. This I can't even articulate yet. It's too great to put into words. I've seen it, but I can't quite say it. So pray that I'll be able to say it. I marvel. I'm appalled that you're so quickly turning away. We could call it deserting from the one who called you by the grace of Christ to a different gospel. A different gospel which is not another gospel, a different gospel, heteros, says the Greek, which is not another, alos, a gospel of, another, of the same kind. It's another kind. Because gospel means announcement of good news, and this ain't no good news if you're saved by submitting to circumcision as a male, as a pagan male, and as a male and female to follow comprehensively the Directions of the Torah. Now, Judaism never, ever taught that you were justified by the works of the law. Judaism as a system doesn't say that. The teacher who distorted Judaism says that. So when you begin to say that you're saved by works, you not only marginalize the death of Christ, you rule it out. Paul said, if I'm in in Galatians 2.21, he said, if I'm justified or justification here means liberated from the power of sin. And saved, if I'm liberated or saved by the works of the law, then Christ has died for nothing. That's what this other gospel gets you. Christ becomes a pendant you wear around your neck at a crucifix instead of the center and heart of the gospel. I'm not against wearing a crucifix at all. I'm not against any of that stuff. But if that's all it is, it's a sign of marginalizing the death of Christ. He says to a different gospel, which is not another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you who want to change the gospel of Christ. They want to change it. That is pervert it. Verse eight. Here's where he throws down the gauntlet. But if we or an angel from heaven preaches a gospel other than the one I preach to you, let him be anathema. And as Michael Harding recently brought out in his exegesis of this, 
Paul isn't saying let him be anathema. He's using the language of these guys who say you're anathema. But he uses it in a very effective way. He uses the language of these false gospel preachers on them. And that word was taken up by the patristic theologians who used to say, if someone doesn't say this, let them be anathema. They anathematized a lot of people. And they probably should have, especially Athanasius, because he was saying, let Arius be anathema, or let him be not listened to. Let, don't listen to Arius, because he says that there was a time when God the Son did not exist. Therefore, he denies the divinity, the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so... There used to be, let them be anathema. And it doesn't mean let them go to hell. It just means let them be cut out of the theological academy. Don't listen to them. So Paul says this. If we or an angel from heaven preaches a gospel other than the one I preach to you, that is when Paul was there in his missionary journey, let him be Anathema. He flips it over, and the word him, I accentuate in my exegesis. I put a bold italic there. Let him be anathema. He kind of turns the tables on this guy who says, Paul should be anathema. Paul says, no, let them, him be anathema. We said it before, he said, and just now again, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let him be accursed he turns the tables on them here we have the setup for the dialectic dialectic of contradictory gospels and what Aquinas rightly called the most manifestive power of opposites the best way to show the clarity of the true gospel is to show it in contrast with its opposite and that's exactly what Romans is That's why Romans is the best. It's the last. God saved the best for last. It's the last of Paul's epistles, and it's the best in terms of clarity of the true gospel. Because once you untangle Paul's true gospel from this false gospel, which he exposes in a dialectic of contradictories, you see it as a clear rendition of what Alan Torrance says it actually is. A divine rescue mission that liberates and reconstitutes a confused humanity. Giving it to participate in Christo, in Christ. Nothing short of that. So the dialectic is set up here. The power of the opposite to manifest most clearly the gospel. The Antiochian incident, or the incident at Antioch, dated around 49, late 49, early 50. Happened in 211 to 14. Now turn to 215 with me. 211 to 14. Paul says, I withstood Peter to the face because he was to be condemned. He was obviously there, not condemned to hell. Paul never says that. So. Paul is still addressing Peter, I think. It's my view that he is until I change, if I further light changes it for me. I think that he seems to still be addressing him with a clear challenge to the Jewish Christian teacher who is troubling the Galatians. 
In Galatians 2, my translation, this has all been my translation from the Greek text so far. He says, we, that means you and I, Peter. Now, this is going to, get, this is going to be different from your translation. And I'll tell you why. We are Jews by nature and not pagan sinners. He's being a little facetious there. And verse 16, and we know, emphasis on the word know, we know that a man is not justified. Again, that means delivered or saved by the works of the law. But through the faithfulness of Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, most translations render this as something like through the faith of Jesus or through faith in Jesus. But you're going to find, and I'm going to show you, throughout Paul, wherever pistis Christu, faith of Christ is found, in Paul, with very few exceptions that don't in any way upset the apple cart of this, it refers to a subjective genitive, and it's the faithfulness or the fidelity of Christ the Messiah. So we, you and I, Peter, are Jews by nature. That is, we were born Jews. We're not pagan sinners, the goyim. And we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Yeshua, the Messiah. He combines here, as he does in Romans, Psalm 143.2 which says by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And we've already qualified that word dikaio means liberated from the power of sin. Through the, but through, here's the tremendous separation of these two gospels. Through the faithfulness of Yeshua, the Messiah. And with reference to Messiah Jesus, we believe. Now, your translation might say, we believe that we might be justified. We believe so that we would be justified. But listen to what it says. It says, we believe as Jews who know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Yeshua the Messiah. Peter knew this. If you don't believe me, read Acts 15, 11, where he says he stood up in the Jerusalem council and he said, we know and believe that they, the Gentiles, will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we are. He knew that. And that's why the pressure for him to put a fence around the Jewish table and move away from the pagans was such a con condemnation because he knew better. So Paul's saying, you, you and I, we know this. We're Jews by nature. And we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Yeshua, the Messiah. That's, in other words, the grace of our Lord Jesus. And with reference to Messiah Jesus, as 16 goes on, we believe that we are justified by the faithfulness of Messiah. He doesn't say we believe in order that we may be justified by faith in Jesus the Messiah. He says, no, as Jews, we believe concerning or with reference to Messiah Jesus, 
that we are justified or liberated by the fidelity or the faithfulness of Messiah and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will ever be justified. He's quoting Psalm 143 too there. And again, Peter knew this. And so Paul is appealing to Peter who knew this. And Peter even said in Acts 15, 11, we believe we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they, the Gentiles, are saved. The grace of the Lord Jesus is a term. It's a metonymy that refers to the entire generous action of God becoming flesh in Jesus Christ, living a life in vicarious obedience to the Father for us, in an obedience and a faithfulness that was to the extent of or to the point of death by crucifixion, wherefore God has also highly exalted him, beginning with resurrection, then ascension, and then enthronement, which in the eschatological future will invite every tongue's confession and every knee's genuflection and every tongue's open, public, worshipful, grateful acknowledgement, not forced Acknowledgement that Yeshua is Kyrios or Yahweh, or that Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God the Father, meaning that after that event, God is all in all. As first Corinthians fifteen twenty eight gels perfectly with Philippians two eight through eleven. But then you knew that from Revelation. So here again, the grace of the Lord Jesus. What are other metonymies? The blood of Christ, a metonymy that evokes the entire event while it accentuates his death on the cross. His faithfulness evokes the entirety of that which begins with his incarnation, goes through his whole life of vicarious obedience to the Father. In other words, Jesus Christ responded to God in a way that we should all respond to God And we don't, so he did it as us and for us. That's why decisions, the decision to be made for salvation is not your decision. That's a decision made by God, first of all, who said, I will that all men be saved and come to the saving knowledge of God. Christ, the saving knowledge of the truth, and I will do all my will. That's God's will. God made the decision right there. And Christ made the decision when he said, not my will, but yours be done, when he was speaking for all of humanity. So, let's read it without all the in-between. We are Jews by nature and not pagan sinners, and we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Yeshua the Messiah. The reason I say that is because of Romans 1.17. And with reference to Messiah Jesus, we believe that we are justified by the faithfulness of Messiah and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And so the rendering of Galatians 2.15 and 16 is confirmed. In 2.20. In other words, if you've got doubts, you go to 2.20. Paul is talking. He says, I was crucified together with Christ. I was crucified 
together with Christ. But I'm living. Yet not I, but Christ is living in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the fidelity or faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He lives by the fidelity of the Son of God. Verse 21, I don't reject the grace of God that is in the giving of his Son. Again, evoking the whole event of the rescue mission of God. For if deliverance is through law, deliverance, again, explains justification. Justification is only a word that's used in the forensic account of the gospel, not in the mystical account. Righteousness of God is not a forensic attribute of God. It is his saving act as God the king. Because the right thing for a king to do is rescue his people. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is God's righteousness, his right action in saving his people through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It's God's righteousness through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And your faith doesn't appropriate that salvation. Christ's faithfulness appropriated that salvation. So there is not a forward trajectory in Galatians 2.15 as if the law failed to justify. The law wasn't meant meant to do that. This isn't a forward trajectory in Galatians 2.15. Again, as if the law, Torah, failed to justify under Judaism, but now people are justified by faith. That's the old way of thinking. I don't think that way anymore, and I'm free, and I'm glad. Rather, there's a straight presentation of opposites here to put, it's put forward. It's, it's by the works of the law, no flesh will be dikaiao, or delivered, or liberated. And we are justified, whether Jew or Gentile. Read Romans 3.30. We'll maybe even get to that pretty soon. We are justified, whether Jew or Gentile, by the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. So what do we have here? The manifestive power of opposites is operative here as it is more thoroughly in Romans. It's always the faithfulness of Messiah. As is testified to throughout Paul. Throughout Paul, this is the testimony. And it's supported by intertextuality, which means Habakkuk 2.4 or Habakkuk 2.4 which is Paul's central prophetic text for all of Romans, where the faithfulness of Messiah there is a metonymy, and it's mentioned, and therefore the narrative evoked is one where the righteous one, that's Christ himself, not somebody who lives by faith, but Christ who is resurrected because of his faithfulness. In Romans 1.17, that's how Paul construes or interprets Habakkuk 2.4, where the faithfulness of Messiah is a metonymy for Christ's faithful obedience to the point of death. But he that is my righteous one shall live, that's by resurrection, because of his fidelity. 
by his fidelity because my righteous one is Christ and Christ executed faithfulness and obedience to the point of death. I'm going to raise him from the dead. My righteous one shall live by resurrection because of his faithfulness, his faithful obedience to the death of the cross. He became obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion so that God exalted him by resurrection. So this is what we would call a Christological interpretation, not an anthropological or an anthropocentric interpretation. The faith of Christ is Christological. It's Christocentric. Christocentric, not anthropocentric. It's unconditional, this salvation. There's no condition for getting in and no condition for staying in at all. There's obligations once you're in Christo and the obligation is faithfulness, but the faithfulness is a participation in Messiah's faithfulness. So our faith is not the means of appropriation of salvation or justification, but it is assurance of our salvation and of our eschatological glorification. Because as many as he called, as many as he foreknew, those he called. Those he called, those he also delivered or justified. Those he justified, those he also glorified. So there is a confident anticipation of eschatological glorification. That's what faith is for. It's for your assurance. Our faith is not the means of appropriation of salvation or justification, but it's assurance of our salvation and of our eschatological glorification. Faithfulness by us then to the point of death, which we may be called to. Faithfulness by us to the point of death is a participation in the faithfulness of the Son of God. That doesn't necessarily mean martyrdom. But when should I give up participating in Messiah's faithfulness? Not till death. Be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown of life. He doesn't say, I'll give you life itself. I will give you a crown of life. Be faithful until death and I how can we be faithful until death unless we're participating in the faithfulness of the one who is faithful until death and I we see the the stone throwers from outside the arena that are stuck in a moment of a forensic accounting of the gospel and a forensic account of justification through the condition of faith are Unaware of this reality. They, they, it's weird, but they don't even know the gospel. They have no idea of the gospel. So by God's kind grace, they're not being judged by God. And if you advance in this gospel and go through hard times, it isn't because God is disciplining you. It's because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers that are dead set against this truth. Now I've actually prayed that God will prosper those who believe this gospel. 
And there's many ways he can prosper us. He prospers our soul. He prospers our health. He prospers. So I'm not against praying for prosperity. I'm dead set against the prosperity gospel because it's a damnable anathema heresy and a deception of people. So if you're going through adversity and you've just accepted this gospel and the stone throwers from outside the arena who've never done a push up are saying that you're suffering because you've taken this gospel on, then look at Paul's life and see what his qualifications were as those, as the man who served Christ shipwreck beatings, health tests, canings, beat up everywhere he goes. Well, he must have the false gospel. It's quite the opposite there. So our faith is not the means of appropriating. Now that's, I keep saying that I keep repeating this because the opposite's been repeated and said ad nauseum and it is being defended. Now people who never preach the gospel to others who they think are going to hell are hell bent in protecting their gospel. Now that it's being challenged. And when it comes to PhD, 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 you can get a PhD in being wrong. So I just thought I'd say that. See, I'm just doing that in a lighthearted way. It's not, it's, it's not the dragon coming out of the basement to react. I got bigger fish to fry than 90 pound weaklings throwing stones into the arena. We got gladiators we're fighting here. Gladiators. It's not peanut throwers from the peanut gallery or stone throwers from outside the arena. I'm saying that not for me, but for you. And don't be discouraged if you see the preachers of this gospel go through some adversities because that's also for you in Ephesians 3.13. That's for you. They go through stuff for you. They get tired of going through stuff sometimes. Until God reminds them that they're not going through it for themselves. But for the sake of the body of Christ. I gladly therefore Paul said I'm not there yet. I glad I rejoice in my sufferings. For your sake that I might fill up that which is lacking in what in other words God has assigned a certain amount of suffering for the church to endure. Before the church is complete. And Paul says, I gladly fill up that which is lacking in the sufferings. That means the corporate sufferings of Christ in Colossians 1.24. So, I guess that's kind of a hit or miss thing tonight. little scattergun action. But we'll just call it contradictory gospels. And Galatians is where we hunkered down. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. And we pray that with each meeting, the sword becomes more and more honed on the stone making much more sharp distinctions between that which has been accepted by American Pelagianism and has resulted in American kind of a distortion of this gospel and a Western tragedy of thinking help us father to distinguish that false gospel from the true one And that we may turn, instead of turning away from the true gospel of God about his son, which is all about Jesus. 
make Christians in America turn away from this other gospel that accentuates your retributive justice, God, rather than the God who is named love. We ask this in Christ's name.